Hello and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is David Kirchin. David is the founder of Master Messaging and he is the author of 6X Convert More Prospects into Customers. David, welcome. Hey, thank you, Marcus, for having me. Looking forward to it. It's my pleasure. Today, David and I are going to be talking about how you can communicate value, tap into what's real, and do away with many of the blind spots and illusions that you're struggling with. How do you use contrast in order to help buyer recognize the need for change? Because buyers don't fear change. What they fear is the uncertainty. And they're also comfy with what's familiar. So you have to find a way of moving them from the intellectual into the emotional. And so we're going to be exploring how to do that. David's very well qualified to do this. So without any further ado, David, welcome. And would you give us 60 to 90 seconds on your history, please? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I started my sales career with uh, Bell South, one of the larger telecommunication companies in the southeastern U.S., Spent about 11 years there, and that's really where I got the foundational training around uh, what goes into the sales profession. I moved from there to the whole dot-com world and actually was one of the first employees for CareerBuilder.com, uh, helped build the sales organization in the Southeast. That led me to a number of other startups in the technology space. And Marcus, what I found is that my value to those startup organizations was figuring out how to rightly communicate the value of this new product or this new technology, build a uh, process in communicating that value, and then hire salespeople and train them to do the same. Came to the conclusion about 11 years ago that uh, in order to do more of that, I needed to step out of the corporate world and start my own consultancy, which is what led to the foundation of Master Messaging. The uniqueness of that is that I never wanted to stand in front of a room of successful salespeople and have them, have them ask the question, why, when I give them a principle or a technique that they should be using in their day-to-day -day activities. I wanted to be able to answer the question, why, and so read about 20 books on behavioral psychology to get an understanding of what is going on inside of the brain of the prospect when you're trying to sell something. The reason for doing that is that if I can connect principles and techniques to behavioral psychology, then it makes it very difficult for salespeople to argue with me around the principles and techniques that they should be using in their selling conversations. Well, uh, I think it's really important at this stage to make a very important point. Almost all of the methodologies that are commonly taught and that are held dear by leadership in sales were developed pre the year 2000. Since the year 2000, we've learned quite a lot about the brain. And what we need to realize is that we do not sell to the company, we do not sell to the human being, we sell to the brain. And the brain's response to certain behaviors, activities, context is relatively predictable. And if it isn't predictable, it's certainly pattern forming. And that therefore means there is no circumstance that a salesperson cannot prepare for. And it's crucial that we really drive home this point because I think every customer deserves the most well-prepared, well-researched, well-rehearsed salespeople who know how to not only ask questions, 
but also give good, clear answers. So they eliminate any form of uncertainty or ambiguity, and they present zero threat, because if they do that, then they lower risk. And perceived risk is the trigger as to whether or not someone will even continue the conversation or they ghost you. So I'm curious about your response to that. Yeah, that no, that makes perfect sense. Um, and again, I think a lot of salespeople may not have the insights and the understanding of what is actually going on inside the brain. Because Marcus, the point that you're making, the, the amygdala, the part of the brain that's responsible for fight or flight, if that gets triggered at any point in a conversation with a prospect, they become very closed off and defensive and, and really just want to exit the conversation because of that trigger in, in their uh, fight or flight. And what happens if the salesperson's flight or fight gets triggered and their amygdala gets hijacked? Yeah, so they they start to get defensive. And, and uh, again, they just kind of dig in around whatever point it is that they've made. And, you know, Marcus, a lot of the reasons for this happening is that we're trained from uh, very early walking around on planet Earth to look at the world from our point of view. So we have biases. We have things that have been baked into that point of view that will show up in, in selling conversations. And the worst part about that is that we should be looking at the world from the point of view of the person that we're trying to build a relationship with. We should try to see the world from their point of view. And your, your point around risk is, is absolutely valid. If, if you see anything in their countenance and anything in the way that they're communicating that starts to communicate to you that, uh, oh, they're, they're getting defensive, then you have to be prepared for that. There has to be a way to, to, to walk them down. And it's really important that we become situationally aware. And that means we have to become self-aware. The, the, the real test of self-awareness is your understanding and your reading of the situation and reading the room. What is your impact on other people and how do they, what, what are you doing to trigger them? Are you causing them to react or respond? Is it a choice or are you creating a reflex? Because chances are, if you're creating a reflex, you're triggering system one in the brain and system one is that big six ton elephant that goes wherever it wants to because the human rider can do very little about it. And system one is, has got all the horsepower, all the elephant power, and uh, system two has the intellect. But the problem is, and this is something that baffles me, we create the conditions in our own organizations where we create stress. And the natural response to stress is heightened reactive amygdala and cortisol and adrenaline. Mm -hmm. and Somehow we believe that this is a healthy state to put our managers in and then let them loose on our salespeople and tell them at the end of a quarter that you better bring these deals in or it's a pit for you next quarter and it's bye-bye the one after. And creating all this uncertainty, all this um, ambiguity and politicking and whatever in companies that grow very, very fast. And then we put them in front of customers and we wonder why 3% the marketing opportunities convert and why 9% of all sales cycles begun end up in a deal. 
and why you end up wasting 91% of your effort. Why are we not asking, is there a better way as a starting point? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Not only not only are uh, leaders instilling that, that sense of urgency and fear that is obviously going to show up in the selling conversations that the sales team members have with prospects. But here's, here's another dynamic that, that goes into that. The compensation systems that we're using today. <laughs> yeah. So Daniel Pink in his book, Drive, when he's, when he's talking about uh, things that motivate us, th- things that cause us to do certain things, he had a whole section in that book on compensation. And they looked at three different types of compensation. 100% commission, 50-50 split, 100, 100% salary. And they studied the performance of sales or uh, sales teams that were using each of those compensation systems. Which one do you think created the most success? It depends on how you're defining success. Are you defining it from the customer's perspective, the company's perspective, or the seller's perspective? Quota achievement. Quota achievement, I would have thought these uh, 100% salary. You're correct. And here's why. And this is the same mistake that sales leaders are making in the way that they communicate with their sales team members. The 100% salary creates uh, a higher quota attainment because it takes what's in it for the salesperson off the table. They don't show up for a conversation thinking either consciously or subconsciously, hey, what's in this for me? If this deal closes, this is what it's going to mean for me. So when you take any kind of uh, performance or commission out of the compensation plan, they're 100% focused on the prospect and helping solve problems in their world. And see, that's the right mindset. If the sales leader is using fear and manipulation to try and get the salespeople to close deals, that causes the salesperson to think about themselves, their survival. Am I going to be here at the end of the quarter? Are they going to fire me? What's going to happen? Same thing with the compensation systems. It causes the salesperson to be thinking about them when they should be thinking about the prospect? Well, I think they should be thinking as the prospect, as my pal Mark Schaefer says, rather than about. Um, That's a really important, subtle distinction. But we talk about empathy, but most people confuse understanding with empathy. I understand how you feel is different to I feel what you feel. And I see what you see. And the problem is that we're in such a hurry because in addition to all the things that you've mentioned and I absolutely agree with, and we have this added bonus, which is the CRM is set up as an audit tool and it's to try and control or give the illusion of control that you control the sale. In fact, we're taught. I I remember as being, as a, a child seller, you know, you've got to have candidate control when I was a recruiter and client control and customer control. I don't want to be controlled as a customer or a candidate or a client. What I really want is someone who's got my back, is my ally. I know that they're not trying to take advantage of me because they've shown up consistently when there was nothing in it for them and they've been timely, relevant and valuable. They've helped me move my understanding forward. But I don't think people really get what value is. So why don't we start with that? Define value. 
Yeah, so there was research done by Daniel Kahneman over the last, really over the last 18, 20 years. By the way, Kahneman, one of the most brilliant behavioral psychologists in the world today, most people don't know that he won the Nobel Prize in economics in the early 2000s. As a behavioral psychologist, he won the most prestigious award. And a lot of that came from his understanding of, of how human beings perceive value. Well, economics is the study of how human beings deal with scarcity. Right. That's exactly what, well, that's what it should be. In most cases, it's no better than having Mystic Meg cast tea leaves. But yeah, anyway. Yeah, so here's what he found. And this is an oversimplification. Value is perceived in a contrasting worldview. That literally what that means is this is what the world looks like without uh, my product or service contrasted with this is what your world could look like with my product or service. And it's in the side-by-side immediate contrast of those two worlds that people perceive value. Here's a simple example. I participate in a fundraising bike ride uh, every year in July. It's a 50-mile bike ride to raise money for kids with autism. And the last July, last year, they started the race in the middle of Delaware and you ride to the beach for 50 miles. The place that they started the race last year, the road, this rural road had recently been stripped of the top coat. And if you know anything about biking, especially with a street bike, that's not a recipe for success. Very narrow saddles, if I remember. Yes. Yeah. And so you're, you know, you're you're vulnerable to tires popping, very rough ride. So anyway, we're we're riding for five miles and we finally get to the new section of road that has been newly paved. Every one of the riders that was riding with our group immediately exclaimed, oh, my God, this is the smoothest road I've ever been in. If they had started the race on the smooth road, nobody would have said that. Nobody would have perceived the value of the smooth road because there would be no contrast with the rough road. I mean, another easy example would be air conditioning. Where I live in Atlanta, Georgia, it gets very hot and very humid in the summer. When you go out into the street, maybe to walk down the road to get a bite to eat or whatever, and it's 95 degrees, 100% humidity, you're sweating immediately. And as soon as you walk into an air-conditioned building, you get that immediate contrast of heat, cool, which is why people pay a lot of money for air conditioning, because there's value in it. And so what sales professionals miss is that they go from rightly communicating or talking about the challenges or problems that they can solve, and then they shift the conversation to, here's what we do to solve it. So you can't go from talking about their world, their problems, their challenges, and then start talking about your product. You have to paint a picture of what their world could look like from their point of view. Okay, so before you go into that, I'm really curious what the blind spots are and uh, how someone can recognize that they're going down the blind alley rather than the right path. Really, it's as simple. The blind spot is simple as paying attention to the word that they use, because here's what's going to happen. They're going to go from talking about the customer's challenges and problems, and then they're going to say, hey, what I do or what we do. And you know what they should be saying is what you can. So the blind spot is, is again, they talk about I and we instead of using the nomenclature of you. And here, again, from a behavioral psychology standpoint, when the person that you're communicating with hears you say, hey, what what if you could, 
or imagine if you could, as soon as they hear the word you, their amygdala signals, hey, pay attention. He's talking about you, as opposed to using the word I or we. So that's a huge uh, blind spot. And again, it's because we're conditioned to look at the world from our point of view. So it's very easy for us to drop into, hey, I'm going to show you, or I'm going to talk about how uh, how we solve that problem, as opposed to, hey, you're going to see, or you're going to hear the things that you're going to be able to do differently. David, tell me this. I, I mean, I've been in the training game for quite some time. You have too. And what baffles me is how much is being uh, out there that is being trained, reinforced, taught, that just doesn't work anymore. I look at the evolution of things like neuroscience, behavioral psychology over the last 20 years, and it gifts us a really good understanding of what goes on both in the seller's brain and the buyer's brain, because you need to look at both of them. And if we understand that, almost everything can be planned for. You can, uh, I mean, I've never yet come across anyone who can tell me that they have been asked an original question by a prospect or been given an original objection that wasn't some kind of lie. So, for example, the, the, the one remotely original objection I've ever heard, which was a patent lie, um, because it was a seat shopkeeper telling someone selling a barter service that barter was against an Indian shopkeeper's religion. Exactly. <laughs> so basically, he was having a laugh at this uh, salesperson's expense because he was so culturally unaware. He thought, this will be funny. You're never going to be asked for an original piece of information that you've never had something like. And you're never going to be asked to give an original answer because all of this stuff can be planned for. And chances are there are about 30 questions or objections you will get in all the time that you sell that particular set of products because you have to have a massively high propensity for boredom in sales because you're having the same conversation multiple times, many times over. Mm -hmm. So given that we know the brain behaves in a particular set of ways. What was working is no longer working. Why is it people still hang on to those old behaviors and they continue to beat their head against the wall and then grumble at the brickwork for the headache? It's change. Marcus, it's all about change. Human beings are not predisposed to change. And so it's very easy for sales professionals just to, to get to a point where, hey, I've done it this way. I've gotten some success from doing it this way. And so I'm just going to continue to do it this way. You know, I said that I'd challenge you if I disagree with you. Okay. Fundamentally disagree with you. And I'll tell you okay. why. We change all the time. What we don't like is uncertainty. Now, there was a meta study of 330 studies on mankind's greatest fear. And mm -hmm. out of all of those 330 studies came one thing, and it wasn't the dentist, and it wasn't public speaking, and it wasn't death. It was the future, because with it comes uncertainty, because the brain's default setting for uncertainty is the worst-case scenario. And we change all the time. Think about it. You've gone through constant change since childhood. Uh, you learned language. You adapted. You're changing uh, on an almost daily basis, adapting to new technology. 
So if you know where you're headed, you don't mind it. But the problem is salespeople bring uncertainty. And to come back to the point I was rambling on about earlier, when they bring uncertainty, they project that out. And that triggers the buyer to go to the worst case scenario. And this is why we end up with half of our pipeline locked in, closed, lost, no decision, triggered by bad selling. Because they do exactly what you said. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't disagree with, um, again, how you've come back to this, this point. Yes, it is about uncertainty. So yes, a human being would be resistant to change if they're uncertain about the outcome. But here, here's how that plays out in the sales world. I've been using PowerPoint throughout my entire career. We're now selling largely over a computer and a flat screen. And I know when I put a PowerPoint up and I communicate this way, this is what's going to happen. Now, if I introduce something different, like the concept of whiteboarding, and Marcus, this happens all the time. I, I talk to sales organizations and I'm like, how many of you are using whiteboarding in the context of a Zoom call or even in a face-to-face uh, -face, uh, conversation? Very few people raise their hand. And you're absolutely right. The reason that they don't change and do something unique or different is because they don't know how it's going to be perceived. Now, the way that they can solve that, the way that they can solve the uncertainty is to practice something new or different, practice it to the point where it removes the uncertainty of what's going to happen, and then they can get the value of it. A hundred percent. Okay. And this is comes back to the point, you need to be well prepared. You need to be well practiced and rehearsed. If you are well prepared, you've done your research on the company, the individual, the industry, the competitive landscape, and you've been able to pull together a reasonable hypothesis, whether it's right or it's wrong, doesn't really matter. What matters is that you've definitely given it some thought. And through the delivery of the hypothesis, you've demonstrated that you understand their industry and their marketplace. You may be lacking in certain information that they have, but if you give it a good stab, chances are you're going to stand out and be different instead of just showing up and vomiting up features and fun functions that no one cares about. They don't care about you your company, your investors, they definitely don't care that you want to go to President's Club gig over in Barbados. Um, and they really don't care that it's your kid's birthday or that you want to remodel the bathroom. That's not their job to care about any of that stuff. They are renting an outcome from you. And if you cannot find a way to help them uh, deliver that outcome, then you're part of the problem. You shouldn't be there selling it to them. So that then brings us to the compensation, because I'd like to um, tie that together as well. What if the compensation had a component where when the customer reports back that they accomplished their outcome, then there was a bonus for all the people who contributed to that outcome? That would be remarkable, because what would happen is that you would have a sales professional, obviously, that is 100% focused on solving that problem. But here's the other thing that would happen, Marcus. They would communicate in a way where they're not overhanging the market, promising things that may or may not happen with the product or service, saying things that may be difficult to deliver on, again, just to get the deal. But, you know, again, a lot of that goes back to the whole focus is on them. 
if that's the way that they're thinking and behaving, they're going to say and do things that are going to get a result that are for them, but not in the best interest of the customer. I think that's a, I think that's a brilliant idea. So let's let's then take it one step further because I'm I'm interested in dissecting the what if or the, and then what happens. So if we have a compensation plan that is driving undesirable behavior, what is the most logical question we can ask ourselves if we're playing this game of uh, using reason and logic? Okay. Is there? Uh, so maybe the question would be, how how is the customer going to be better off as a result of doing business with us? That's a really good first question. Would a better question be, how can we create the conditions where there's a win for the customer and there's a win for us? No point do they ever feel like we're prioritizing our needs before theirs. Yeah. No, I I I think that that's a, a perfect uh, a perfect question because again it there's not a prospect in the world that doesn't understand the salesperson is going to be compensated in some way for for doing their job. Yeah. And so again, most most prospects and customers they know hey we've got to get to a place where this makes sense for both of us at least again the good customers or prospects and so by structuring the uh, the question that way. Yeah, it's going to give you the best opportunity to get that result. What's interesting is if you start working backwards from the job to be done, and that this hearing lies part of the problem, I think, and I'd love to get your take on it when you're pull, uh, helping people build messaging. How, how do you ensure that the messaging speaks to the, the real job to be done? Because a lot of what we talked about today is really about perceived risk perceived reality because everybody has a very limited model of the world inuit languages and there are up to 200 uh, words for snow we don't need that uh, so we don't ever have that you know level of reference uh, or that depth because of that we have a very limited perspective which means that we bring with us a bunch of blind spots and assumptions and baggage so I'm really, really interested to explore um, how do we become more aware of all of this stuff and what, what do we need to do to make this simpler? Because that, that is overwhelming. What are the simple questions we should be asking that no one is? Yeah, you know, again, I think a lot of it comes down to, to human behavior. The questions that you should be, again, I'm, I'm going to go back to the question I posed a few minutes ago. How is the prospect going to be better off as a result of doing business with me? If you make that question and the answer to that question, the focus of the relationship, then the simplicity comes about. Because if the North Star of the relationship is, I'm going to help this person realize whatever the answer to that question is, how they're going to be better off, that's the focus of my relationship then it gets rid of behavior like just talking about the product or service that you represent. It gets rid of the behavior of, hey, I'm going to give you an artificial inducement to make a decision uh, earlier than, than later. By having a very narrow focus or a North Star in that relationship to get to the answer to that question, uh, I, it's one of the simplest things that you could do to, to, uh, to be more self-aware. I think you've touched on something else, which or you uh, triggered in my mind, which is why are we not looking for simpler um, answers? 
so uh, my pal Patrick Bacusis, he and I fight because he's always the um, go for the simplest option. And I have a massive tendency to overcomplicate and then we fight and then something better comes out. But when he was uh, leaving his sales organization, he moved the quarter end for sales one month forward. So instead of ending in June, he ended it in May, unofficially. Everyone kicked off, you know, you can't do that. He did it anyway. But what that did was it took all the pressure off salespeople and it gave him and the team a month to remedy anything that was wrong. Now, it also meant that they never ended up giving up stupid discounts because they didn't feel that pressure to do it at the end of the quarter when everyone else was feeling it. Another um, fabulous idea, Emma Barrett-Hoey, came up with this brilliant idea, which is that what you do is, oh, hang on a nose, um, Pathy Hatter over at Palo Alto. What they did was they came up with outcome-based pricing. So all of a sudden, customers were buying the stuff that they actually needed and wanted, and they weren't buying the stuff they weren't, so they weren't churning. Then Emma Barrett-Hoey came up with this other brilliant idea, which is, well, you could wait till the end of the quarter and try and squeeze us on price. But tell me then, first come, first served, what's the likelihood that you're going to get the people that we have who are the best for your project? I mean, can you wait six to 12 months in order to stiff us for five grand? Now, these are simple things that cost nothing, nothing. And yet, leadership doesn't bother to think about these things or even ask those questions. Why? Why, why are we not thinking intelligently? Well, I think it goes back to something that you said earlier in our conversation, and that is the uh, the fear or the pressure that sales leaders, uh, uh, again, that they're experiencing in their role. They're sitting there thinking, hey, the average tenure for uh, a sales leader in today's world is about 17 months. So they've got this. Okay. Yeah. And so they've, they've got this this you know, this fear that's driving their behavior. And you know what happens when human beings experience fear is they become very closed-minded. They're, they're not thinking about simple questions. They're not thinking about simple things that they could do. They're just, again, focused on what can I control? Well, I can control instilling fear in my sales team in the same way that I'm experiencing it so that, again, I get the results that I think I, I, I need or, or, or I need to realize. This irony baffles me how this is is lost on so many VC, private equity, and leaders. When you put a buyer under pressure, the part of the brain that gets triggered is the insular succumbence, which is where contempt and disgust reside. And those get triggered intentionally because of the behavior of the managers who are responding to leadership, who are responding to the valuation target, which is the real job to be done, which is ensuring that the general partners can raise the next fund. Mm -hmm. That's tech. I mean, real businesses, it's slightly different because they have to make a profit. But again, private equity is fiddling around in all of that. That's a big problem because um, I think what's happened is we've created this myth of the unicorn and funding and why it's a great thing. And do you know that 98.3%, uh, sorry, 98.7% of all companies invested in by venture capital or private equity 
end up not making it past Series B. Yeah. Now, they tout the unicorns in the same way that salespeople at interview talk about their wins, but they bury their dead very quickly. Why is it we're spending so much time avoiding the difficult conversations internally? Why is it so hard to get a sale to work internally because we're spending so much time fighting each other instead of um, challenging one another to get better? You're really speaking to the culture of the company. That type of behavior and that that type of culture really is it's fostered by by leadership. I absolutely enjoyed uh, the opportunity I had to work at Career Builder, and one of the reasons for that is that Rob McGovern, who was the founder of the company, in the early days you could walk into his office at any time, and and ask a question, like why why did we price it this way? Why are we developing this capability in in our product? And by fostering open communication from from uh, the the top down, it created a culture of challenging, questioning: Is this the best way? Is, is this the best uh, you know the best path for the result that we're trying to get? So I I have to point back to uh, leadership and and the way that the culture is developed inside of companies. I I, I mean I, I'll tell you another funny story. I was the sales leader for a financial services company. And when I was interviewing with the CEO, at the end of the interview, I asked the CEO, I said, hey, you've had a chance to talk to a couple of references. We've had about an hour and a half conversation. I'm curious, what do you think about my ability to uh, help your team or help your company grow? And he looked at me and he goes, yeah, I wouldn't know because, you know, when a salesperson's talking, they're lying. <laughs> well, I knew right away that was not the culture of a company that I wanted to be a part of because he put no value on the, on the sales organization or the sales professional. He just thought they were all liars. So the opportunity to ask insightful questions, to push back and challenge that all is going to happen in a culture that is fostered by the leadership. Okay. So the money behind an organization permeates the culture. Yes. Yes, absolutely. What advice would you give to founders before they take money? Make sure uh, oh, that's a great question. Uh, you know, again, I had another interesting conversation with one of my recent clients. Normally, the CEO of uh, my clients' uh, companies they don't attend the workshops with the salespeople. This one, the CEO did, and when we got done with the workshop, he started asking me questions about how to communicate with VCs. And he he basically was saying, can you can you help me incorporate some of the things that you're teaching salespeople to incorporate incorporate that into the pitches and the communication that I have with with VCs? And I said, well, the first thing that you have to understand is that you're in a position of power, not them. You've got something of value and you need to be asking questions of them to understand, are they going to align with the, the value that uh, and the value systems that you have and the beliefs that you have for your organization. So there, there are questions that you can ask, like, um, uh, you know, how would uh, how would you respond to an employee that came to you with this problem? Just ask the VC a hypothetical question as far as how they would respond to that situation. And so you have to think of things that you've experienced inside of your company and the ways that you've handled them 
and then see how the VC would handle that same situation. If it's at odds with what you've done in the past or what you believe is the right path forward, then you need to walk away from that VC and find one that aligns more closely with your values. The only slight change that I would make to that question is ask them for multiple examples um, because hypotheticals, uh, people make shit up. They want to do that. So, And you can ask the question in many different ways and have them come up with multiple examples. If they can't, it isn't a habit, which means that it's probably not part of culture. And if they do tell you a story, every now and again, have them tell it backwards. Because if they're making it up and it's part of a narrative, they'll create cognitive dissonance because they have to go to the end of the story and then back again, the end of the story, back again, and becomes disjointed. So it's a fabulous interview technique. I appreciate it. I've never heard that, telling a story backwards. I'm going to use that uh, at least in the next week or so in uh, one of my conversations. Make sure they tell the story forwards first. See, that was really interesting, David. Tell me that one again, but I'd like you to run it backwards from the end when the customer derived the value and told you so. Work it backwards step by step because you'll find the stuff that's the fabrication because that's the bit that just goes and they get stuck. Because that, that, that then becomes a point of interest. Because again, it's not about trying to catch them out. It's trying to get to the truth. And because people have a perception of the truth and a perception of reality, and they are often wildly different. Right. Yeah. So let, let's just wrap up a little bit on the book because it's just out on Amazon. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I know this is a topic of massive interest to the audience, um, especially now when they're struggling to get access to the senior decision makers that they used to be able to get hold of. So tell us a little bit about six time, uh, six X convert more uh, prospects into customers. Yeah, the book really, it's focused on early stage conversations, you know, and having worked with over 250 companies over the last 11 years, you know, been in front of thousands of salespeople, these sales professionals, they don't have any challenge or problem understanding their product and how it would be implemented inside of a customer's organization. So they have deep product expertise. The behavior that comes out of that, having deep product expertise is a belief that if I just show up in the first conversation and have enough conviction and passion about the product or service that I represent, that the prospect's going to throw up their hands and say, give me 10. And that's not the reality because the prospect isn't going to be listening to what your product is and does until they understand what it means to them. So there's a very specific way that you can construct a conversation, that discovery call, that first meaningful conversation with a prospect. There's a very specific way that you can construct that call so that at the end of the call, you can be 100% confident that the prospect has clarity around the value for them, their business, and what it means to them. At that point, they're going to start pulling information out of the salesperson's experience and expertise around how the product works because they have a vested interest. They want to know how it works. So can I give you a quick example? Yes, please. Okay. So um, I'll give you a a hypothetical, just kind of a, a, a funny scenario. Imagine I walk into a cellular store and I tell the salesperson, you know, I made a decision 20 plus years ago. I didn't want to have anything to do with a smartphone. And so I've been one of those weird people that have been walking around on the planets, and I just don't want to have anything to do with a smartphone. But I woke up today, and I'm kind of curious. 
What's all the excitement about? Here's what most sales uh, professionals that working at the cellular store would do. They would run and go grab the latest iPhone off the shelf and they go, David, these things are amazing. They're made out of Gorilla Glass. They got aluminum backing. It's got a 128 gigabit hard drive in it. It's got an 18 megapixel camera and it's all in a form factor that weighs less than a pound. Yeah, blow, blow my brain. And I'd, I'd be looking at them and go, well, that's why I never wanted to know anything about smartphones because that sounds ridiculous, right? So I walk into another store that understands this dynamic of how to build a conversation that communicates value. And instead of throwing a smartphone in my face, they go, hey, tell me a little bit about your world. Oh, okay. Uh, married, four adult kids. As a matter of fact, my oldest daughter just got married, moved out to Portland, Oregon, and just gave birth to our first grandbaby. Her name is Charlotte. Oh, so you've got a family out in Portland, Oregon, and you're in Atlanta. Yeah. Well, how's that working out? Hey, it's horrible. My wife is an emotional mess. She wants to be with my daughter to support her. We don't know what it's like to be a grandparent. It's it's horrible. Well, David, what if you could see your granddaughter every day like she was standing right next to you? What if you could see her first steps? Or maybe more importantly, what if you could see the expression on her face the very first time she says granddaddy? You can. It's called a smartphone. Do you want one? That's a completely different conversation because the contrast in that is so stark when they that when they tell when I ask him, hey, how much does that cost? And he says, oh, it's five grand for a smartphone. My response would be, I'll take two. Are you kidding to have this outcome that you just communicated to me? That's the challenge that salespeople face. They have to rightly understand that and be able to build a conversation that accomplishes the you same thing. touched on something which is so key, which is it's never, ever, ever about the money in a real selling situation. But we are conditioned by idiocy and history to think that it's about the money. If it's a real selling situation and the, and the buyer determines the price, you don't. If you're willing to charge that amount, and they don't flinch, chances are you could have probably charged some more. Now, is it fair to charge more? That's another question. And you shouldn't be scalping your clients if you want to keep them for many, many years. But being expensive, being premium priced, means that the tariff on your top of pipeline is significantly lower. Do you know that on average, just to get to a first meeting, it takes 686 plus cold dials if you're manually dialing in this market. Mm -hmm. And seven out of eight first meetings don't result in a second. So rather than wasting more time on the top of the funnel, why not just focus on trying to get two out of eight converting into second meetings, justifiably, then three, then four, then five, then six. But it strikes me that we are spending so much energy on trying to uh, fix the wrong end of the problem because we're not spending enough time in reflection and in questioning what we've always done. So- Hey, Marcus, here's, here, here's another data point. I, I think most of your audience will be familiar with the Challenger sale. Obviously, yeah. the book's been out for a number of years. When they were doing the research for that book, they canvassed over 5,000 executives, and they ask them a very important question. What's the most important criteria you pay attention to when you're making a buying decision for your company? Here, here were the results. It came out of these three numbers, 9, 19, and 53. 
So the results were 9% of the executives responded to price, which was the lowest number, Marcus. Yep. 19% responded brand. Another 19% responded the product itself. But 53%, over half of them, said the most important criteria they paid attention to was the conversation with the sales profession. Your listeners should pay attention to that. It goes back to everything that we've talk, talked about today, and that is it's about what you're saying, the interaction that you're having with another human being. It's not the price point. It's not necessarily the brand. It's not necessarily the product. Those are all important. But the more important thing is how are you behaving and communicating with that prospect? Well, in the same research, because one of my partners, Moe Lamin, was um, Matt Dixon's protege and uh, headed up a sales team when they were taking Challenger to market. And uh, what he found from his research, speaking to 420 C-suite decision makers, was that salespeople who understood their company would come in at about two out of five. They would come in at four out of five if they understood the company and the industry and the context in which the executive was having to operate. And 100% of them said that if they did not believe the other person was being honest and they could be trusted, they did not buy. Yeah, yeah. I had a conversation with a CIO years ago here in the Atlanta market, and he, he let me in on a secret. He, he said, hey, David, I communicate with about 46 other CIOs in the Atlanta market. We have a, we have a, a list, uh, an email list. And when a salesperson comes in and has a conversation with one of us, and we get a bad feeling about their honesty and trustworthiness, an email goes out to the other 47, hey, if this person ever calls you, don't have anything to do with them. Mm. This again speaks to another really important thing, which we won't have time, but I don't want to overstate my welcome. But hiring, if you want to remove 95% of your management problems, hire better, mm -hmm. hire predictively and hire the right people who share the values that you all have and then hire for diversity and everything else. And this right. is horrifically wrong because if you hire the wrong people, the cost of a bad hire is astronomical. It can potentially lock you out of a market, not just the company, but a market for decades. I have a calculator. The cost of a wrong hire in enterprise sales, so complex, high-ticket enterprise selling, can be anywhere at the low end, if the angels are smiling on you, at 35 times salary, up to about 125 times salary. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're a CFO, and for some reason you think that you should be stiffing your recruiter and going for the low fees, you will end up getting their B and C level candidates. If you pay a premium above market rate, they will always send you their best candidates and you'll save yourself a lot of bother. Just a thought. Yeah. Yeah, I've got a, a, a close friend of mine that has been running a uh, recruiting agency for sales, sales leaders for over 25 years. He would love to be able to take that sound clip that you just <laughs> communicated and use that on his, uh, on his website. Well, he's very welcome to. If they want to argue with me, I'm very happy to. If you want to fix a problem, make its cause go away, and then there's a beautiful ripple effect. The only problem with that is it's kind of like someone running on a treadmill, and then you turn the electricity off without warning them. Right. 
there's that ripple effect. And then you've got to work out how do we redeploy these people? Well, right. the big problem with change is the uncertainty. So when you're making these changes, you need to bring everybody on side, have them contribute and push the decision down to the lowest point in the organization that has contact with the customer and give them guidelines as to how they may make decisions based around the values that you all hold dear. Is it good for the customer? Is it good for the company? Does it touch on any of these no-go areas? Does it cost any more than this amount? If it meets those criteria, you can make any decision you like. And if it backfires, we will back you and you will not be punished. The only reason you'll be punished is if you hide it. Because we keep a failure law. Yeah. Under the sound of gunfire. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) David, thank you so much for this. It's been a really interesting and enlightening conversation. Um, How can people get hold of you? Uh, a couple of ways. Uh, you can obviously go to our website, mastermessaging.com, and there's contact information there to uh, reach out to me as well. On the website, you'll see information about the book and a newly released online course. Uh, again, all of it focused on how to construct a high value uh, discovery call in conversation to ensure that you get to the next stage of the uh, sales process. You can also go to LinkedIn. You can, uh, uh, again, connect with me on, on LinkedIn. Again, it's David. Kirchen. And then if you want to buy the book, you can go to the website or you can go to Amazon, either one. And it is up on Amazon. You can't look at the Kindle yet, but it's only up a couple of days. So uh, I'm sure that will follow soon. Yes, absolutely. Dave Kirchen, thank you. Hey, Marcus, thank you for having me. Uh, This has been a lively conversation. I've enjoyed it. My pleasure. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you're a salesperson, an AE, or an aspiring manager, or a new manager or leader who is managing to put off the temptation to put your interest before the customers till now, but you've found that what used to work doesn't work anymore, and you're looking for a coach that is going to be the coach you need, not necessarily always the coach you want, and will not leave you anywhere to hide. with your excuses, the lies you tell yourself, then set up a 15-minute call. It's free. There's going to be no pressure. But what I do promise you is I'm going to ask you the one question that is going to help you to unlock the next stage in your career. So if you want to have that chat, then do drop me a line. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.